Today in the garage, we have Laura Lisho and Aisha Abawaji. Laura Lisho is a criminal lawyer whose practice takes her all over Southern Ontario. She has served as a past Criminal Lawyers Association representative for 311 Jarvis Court and is currently volunteering as the Pardon Clinic Pilot Project Coordinator with Cannabis Amnesty. In her free time, she likes hanging out with her dog Milo, making candles, watching trash TV, learning about astrology, and planning her next trip to New Orleans. Aisha Abawaji is a law student at the Lincoln Alexander School of Law here in Toronto and is one of two students completing a fellowship at Cannabis Amnesty in 2022. Her fellowship involves working on campaigns, drafting legal briefings on relevant bills, and supporting the organization's mission. Her studies focus on systemic and meaningful reform of the justice system. In today's garage, Aisha and Laura discuss their involvement with Cannabis Amnesty what led them to this project and the work of that organization. Whether you're driving your VW Golf, shredding your fender, or drafting a leave application, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. Laura, Aisha, thank you very much for being here today in the garage. Thank you for having us, Marco. Glad to be here. Uh, Aisha, I just like to start with you because some of our listeners may not be familiar uh, yet with you. They know Laura from previous episodes. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, how you got into law school and what got you there. Yeah, um, so I went to law school, as I think many young people do, hoping to make a change. Um, I just completed my first year at the Lincoln Alexander School of Law. And the reason I chose this law school in particular is the focus on diversity and inclusion, access to justice, um, tech and technology in the legal space, as well as the practical component where we get to do lots of hands-on drafting uh, legal documents, uh, practicing various things, etc. Yeah, so I think I went to law school because I think the legal system is a cornerstone of our society and I think changing the legal system or creating meaningful systemic change in the legal system can have and will have ripple effects throughout society. I think uh, you know there's lots of grassroots organizing that happens um, in in Canada and I think it's amazing work and I've been involved in that a little bit in my um, hometown Halifax Nova Scotia and I always found that where we end up um, banging against the wall where there's the people in power in one room and then there's us the people um protesting on the streets um you know bringing up these like relevant issues but not being able to do much about it on a bigger scale and so me attending law school i'm hoping to really learn the system understand how law works and how our society works at that level um, and then hopefully be able to translate that between um organizing communities and people doing that important grassroots organizing um, and be able to bring that change um, in the boardrooms and spaces of power. If only I uh, could articulate an answer as well as that when I was a first-year law student, uh, Aisha. Laura, do you remember why you went to law school? I know it was a long time ago, (laughs) but do you remember? Um, So when I was a kid, I, I used to love mystery books. I used to love detective stories. Um, I was an avid reader as a young child, and I really loved Nancy Drew books. 
Um, and as I grew up, I started watching things like Matlock and Perry Mason um, and Murder, She Wrote, <laughs> throwback to the 80s. Um, so these were all mystery stories or stories about crime or um, courtroom dramas or comedies in some cases. So uh, these were things that, you know, I was interested in. Um, but after I finished my undergrad at Queen's in political science and history, I was looking to next steps. And, um, you know, I was interested in public policy. Should I take a master's in public policy? Um, I was interested in PR. So should I do a um, graduate program in public relations? Um, but law school kind of covers all of those things. You have an ability to change public policy. Um, as a criminal lawyer, you're doing a lot of PR work for your clients. It's all PR work, really. Um, and also, it opens up a lot of different doors, both in Canada and internationally. So I thought law school was the way to capture all of these various um, interests and points of intersection and um, the degree could open up so many so many doors whether I decided to be a practicing lawyer or not so that's why I chose law school I just want to touch upon one of the less uh, important things you said in terms <laughs> of Perry Mason yes because it's so funny that I find we still use like the term Perry Mason moment among lawyers yes you say what happened to that Perry Mason moment and people complain that for instance um, the changes to the legislation around uh, 278 in the criminal code, section 270 in the criminal code takes away that Perry Mason moment. And then I'm sitting here at a table and I'm thinking um, Aisha wasn't born for sure. I don't know how old she is, but I'm just going to guess she wasn't born when you and I watched the eighties Perry Mason, which was in fact just occasional TV movies by the same actor who played Perry Mason in the 50s and 60s, Raymond Burr. Mm -hmm. And that's what I grew up watching uh, in the 80s, which is what you were referring to just now. Yes. And so I'm going to ask Aisha, do you know who Perry Mason is? I have no clue. <laughs> you want to provide a little explanation, Laura? <laughs> Go ahead, Marco. So, You're older than me, so you can <laughs> your memory's better. So Perry Mason basically is a... TV drama. It was a it was a series, and he was a lawyer who uh, effectively cross examined and usually you know got those big aha moments through his uh, examination of witnesses, and his clients would get acquitted usually at the end of the episode. And it's funny that we still use that term, I think, in our regular parlance. But the up-and-coming generation is probably has no clue who that is, and that's evidenced oh, right here. I just used the term last week um, I, to my clients' parents. I They were there to support my client, and I said, okay, so today we're going to cross-examine the complainant, but I just want you to understand what cross-examination is about. There's not going to be a Perry Mason moment. It's we have to cover these points, and I have to put our theory of the case to her and she may deny it, but don't expect the Perry Mason moment. That's all straight out of TV. So I still do it all the time as well. So now that we got that uh, <laughs> piece of information out of the way for our listeners, and a lot of the, the Law Garage um, 
listenership are among the more recent calls to the bar. So, you know, some of these little traditional uh, comments that we make might be something that could be useful to them. So now that we got that out well, of the way. Well, now they can go home and stream or find in the archives somewhere uh, Perry Mason. And if they don't know who Perry Mason is, they can educate themselves and watch a few episodes. There was actually a recent Perry Mason uh, HBO show that s- covers the life of the character before he becomes a lawyer. Uh, he's like a private detective and before he becomes a lawyer. So that's something that people might want to get into if they're looking at watching it in terms of a chronology. In any event, Aisha, tell us a little bit about what can- Cannabis Amnesty is. So Cannabis Amnesty is an independent, not-for-profit organization focused on righting the historical wrongs caused by decades of cannabis prohibition, particularly its impacts on racialized and indigenous communities who have historically been overrepresented in cannabis arrests. Some of our past accomplishments to date include our expungement campaign and our racial justice town hall. And current initiatives we have ongoing include our Royal City Joints for Justice program, the Toki Fellowship, which I am a part of, our Pardons Clinic, and our Legalize Us campaign. And we believe that no one should continue to be punished for something that is no longer illegal. Um, Laura, I know you're a busy uh, practicing lawyer in Toronto, but how did you get involved in Cannabis Amnesty? Cannabis amnesty means something to me on, um, on a personal level. Um, as we all know, uh, cannabis convictions uh, bring with it a lot of collateral consequences for people. Um, it can cause them problems with travel, with finding employment, um, with volunteering in their community. And uh, it's not just people with convictions. It these collateral consequences can occur just by the very fact that someone is charged, even if they're wrongfully charged, even if the charges are withdrawn, they still experience the effects of these collateral consequences. And so um, Stephanie DiGiuseppe and Anna Maria and Anna Jor, uh, who are on the board of Cannabis Amnesty and founders, um, they approached me with an opportunity um, and I took it because Uh, it was an opportunity to help build a pardon clinic um, that offers free services to support people um, in applying for pardons, um, supporting them through the application process, uh, which is a very convoluted process um, and difficult for a lay person to navigate themselves. Uh, And I think it's really meaningful work, and I think it can make a huge difference in people's lives in removing that big obstacle uh, that is standing in their way from uh, full reintegration into society so they can do all of the things that um, we take for granted. I'm thinking back to where I was on February 12th, 2015. I was at Old City Hall. I was walking out of 112 court when I checked my phone and I got a message asking me if everything was okay with Laura Leisho. And obviously that was a concerning uh, message for me. 
and I responded, why? And somebody advised me that they heard that they, she had some problems in Brampton court. Did that have, did that experience have anything to do with getting involved in this organization? A hundred percent. And I think that's why, um, I, I say cannabis amnesty has, um, there's a personal interest in it. Um, I was uh, wrongfully arrested by the Peel police on February 12th, 2015. Uh, I was in the course of a trial. Uh, it was a firearms trial. The trial had already commenced, um, and my client needed a clothing change. Um, so in the course of affecting that clothing change, of course, um, if any other counsel have done this before, there's a procedure. You provide the clothing to a court officer. Uh, the clothing is searched and then um, given to the client. So on that morning, uh, somebody had given me uh, the clothing um, and I provided it to the officers to be searched. And uh, lo and behold, secreted in a shoe, not in plain view, was some marijuana. Uh, and so the Peel police promptly arrested me in court, <laughs> handcuffed me and dragged me through the hallways. It was a very public spectacle. Um, and then brought me to a jail cell where I stayed for a few hours having no idea what was going on and what the substance was or anything of that nature until I was um, informed. Uh, long story short, not to bore anybody with the details. Uh, well, <laughs> but you're, you're, not, you're not boring anybody with the details. I'll, I'll tell you the outsider's perspective. Uh, we'll stop there for a moment because... From er and you and I are friends, and we've been friends for a long time, but nobody um, could believe this in the sense that your character in the bar is such that it was impossible. It was an impossibility. It was 100% a misunderstanding from across the board. But more shocking is that nobody could believe what you just said, that you were arrested and taken into custody uh, while in, in court. That um, was the thing that made everybody kind of band together, as far as I could tell, and say, you know, what the heck is going on here? Um, you know, misunderstandings happen, but action like that is shocking. And it does send a, 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 an effect across the bar. Um, tell us the, the impact that that had on you. Well, I think um, <laughs> I remember Dirk Durstein saying to me, you know, by the, by the grace of God, go I, right? Like this is a situation that could have happened to um, any of us. Um, you know, these things happen um, all the time in the course of daily practice. Um, and so it had a profound effect um, on me and why I chose to get involved with uh, cannabis amnesty. So of course the charges were withdrawn and um, some of you may or may not know this, so I will share. I did sue the Peel police. Um, I was successful in my lawsuit, um, but that was sort of bittersweet for me. So on one hand, I was um, very happy to be vindicated um, and, and 
have won my lawsuit. But on the other hand, it also made me realize that there are a lot of people that are wrongfully arrested um, who do not have the means or the support to go through a process like the civil, the civil court process, which is time-consuming and expensive. Um, it was a process that took five and a half years to conclude. So it was hanging over my head for five and a half years. Um, and a lot of people just don't have the means to participate in that. And um, we need to take a look at that, at what access to justice means in the civil court context. But I'll leave that discussion for another day. Um, so I do not have a criminal record. But as a result of being arrested, like I said, a lot of the collateral consequences of having a cannabis record um, still apply. Um, you cannot participate in the legal cannabis industry in certain roles if you have any occurrences uh, that involve um, an, an allegation of illegality or illegal um, action related to cannabis. Um, so there would be things that even though I am an innocent person, um, and my name was cleared and I don't have a record, there are roles in the cannabis industry that I would be barred from participating in because a record of arrest or a, an occurrence report was generated as a result of myself being um, arrested. Uh, I, I uh, waited to travel. After the charges were withdrawn, I waited six months to travel. And I did this because the CPIC system takes a long time to update. Uh, but despite waiting a long time to travel to the United States, um, when I did choose to travel, I was stopped and I was flagged for secondary. And so I knew, of course, they're not allowed to tell you much, but I knew it must have had something to do with the fact that I had been charged because this had never happened to me before. Um, and so I travel with my documents when I go to the United States. I travel with my documents confirming that my charges have been withdrawn uh, in case I'm asked any questions or it is flagged. Now, thankfully, it never stopped me from gaining entry into the United States, but it, it hypothetically, it could, and it stops a lot of Canadians um, with actual cannabis records from entering into the United States. Um, so I've experienced firsthand some of the collateral um, effects. Let's let's. I I, I want to continue on that yeah. discussion, but before we move further down, if I could just take your mind, I just there's a couple of things I want to pick up on what you said. Um, as being somebody in the criminal justice process, that um, we are only as a role as, as counsel used to assisting, how did that arrest experience, um, for instance, having charges over your head or being detained, shed any light as to what our clients might be going through during that, that time period? Can you shed some light on that? Or let me put it to you another way. Did it change your understanding or your appreciation of what they might be going through? And if so, how? Oh, Marco, this could be a whole episode in and of itself, but uh, just some highlights. Sure. This is what I would say. 
Sometimes a client's reaction to being arrested might not be what we logically think it it should be. Uh, People react all kinds of different ways to something that shocks them or traumatizes them. Um, So it, number one, uh, it made me think about that. Uh, I was in a state of shock when this happened to me, so I may not have been presenting in a way that, you know, a a person looking in from the outside would have uh, expected me to present as because I had no idea what was going on. Um, I can tell you that when we're asking witnesses questions or let's say we're interviewing our own clients when we're taking notes about what they remember from the day in question. Um, Sometimes we're hard. We're hard on them in our expectations and why their memory is not as perfect as we, we think it should be. So think of it this way. If you are an innocent person, you're not observing everything that's going on around you because in your mind... You have no idea you are going to be arrested. And so you're not taking notes about, you know, what kind of coffee you had that morning and what the clock, where the arms on the clock were and like who was around you and what color clothes they were wearing. You're not paying attention to any of that because as an innocent person, your your mind doesn't know that one day you're going to have to give evidence to a police officer or in court um, about what you were doing that day. And so... I think sometimes we expect our clients or witnesses' um, memories to be a lot stronger than they are when something so impactful happens to them. But uh, memory, it's a funny thing, right? Um, when you're not expecting something to happen, you, you, you don't remember certain things or you're just not, you weren't paying attention to certain things because you weren't expecting it. So that's something um, that I've learned as well, um, but also on a, on to other criminal lawyers out there. Um, one of the big things that drew to my attention was that we are not protected um, by the institutionalized moral high ground that protects the police and the crown attorneys. As defense counsel. As defense counsel. And so this, I think, is one of the biggest dangers to defense counsel. Um, we have to have our wits about us, and we are not protect. We don't enjoy that that protection. Um, you know, the general public um, thinks police officers are good. They associate them with good. These people are here to catch the bad guys, right? These are the narratives, and so police officers um, enjoy that moral high ground protection. We'll call it, and same with crown attorneys because they're viewed as being part of the state or um, helping, whether rightfully or wrongfully in the public's eyes, they're viewed as helping police officers present the case or helping complainants or, you know, that perspective. So they enjoy the protection of that moral high ground. Uh, As we all know, people don't necessarily, the general public doesn't understand what criminal lawyers do. Um, Some people have a hard time understanding what we do um, in relation to our clients. They think we support their bad behavior. We condone their bad behavior. We help them be unaccountable. And as as we all know, 
as friends in this room, that's not what we do. We hold police accountable. We believe in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We believe in trial fairness and all these other important things. That's, that's what we do. That's why we're in this job. Um, but there's nobody there on, on our side. We don't enjoy that, um, the protection that comes with that, the public perception, right? Um, so it, it, it alerted me to the fact that we, there is a little bit of danger in our job um, every day unbeknownst to us because we might think we're equals in the justice system. Um, and we are and we should be. We went to law school just like the Crowns did. But in reality, when something happens, we don't necessarily enjoy um, that the, benefit. That, yeah. that presumption. That presumption, yes. Um, in terms of the the weight of the prosecution over your head and, and the, the delay it takes to get to, I mean, I know it must have felt like forever, even though by our understanding of how long things take, I, I, I don't know how long your case took to resolve, but I don't remember it taking extremely long in terms of the criminal prosecution. Um, can you tell us about how, you know, when we talk about delay and the 11B rights and the weight of a prosecution over our clients' heads, um, how does that feel? Um, minutes feel like hours. So 11B is a very real right that needs to be protected. It is not a technicality. Uh, as some people might might view it, if uh, somebody wins an 11B challenge, they're not winning based on a technicality. They are winning based on a real charter breach. And what about, um, I'm not sure if you were subjected to any of the other aspects of the charter that you felt that your rights might have been compromised or not upheld. Um, this is what I would say. Uh, Section 9. I mentioned this, I think, at a CLA conference in, in 2015, but just want to highlight Section 9, um, arbitrary detention, unlawful arrest. Uh, that's often one of the, the charter sections that people think don't have a lot of teeth. You know, we're often bringing a Section 9 and then a Section 8, the search component that goes with it and a violation of that. But Section 9 alone is a real violation, uh, when, when that's breached, it is a very real violation. When somebody is arrested wrongfully, arbitrarily, a record is created. A police record is created. It may not end up being, it's not a conviction, but a record is created of that incident and that arrest. And those records uh, are always somewhere in the police system um, and follow people. Um, and it's those records that cause problems. For example, if somebody wants to participate in the legal cannabis industry, it's, it's the current and they're applying for particular roles or positions. I'm not going to get into all of them, but um, those things, when they do a background check, they can 
they can come up, even though they're not a criminal record, they're not considered a criminal record or a conviction. Um, so Section 9 is super important, um, and I encourage criminal lawyers, if they're bringing a charter, of course, we try to highlight as many charter breaches as possible to show like a systematic disregard by the police um, for people's rights. Uh, bring that Section 9. Um, when you're arguing the 24-2 component, these are the things you can bring up. There are consequences. I didn't mean to sidetrack from the cannabis amnesty um, focus that we want to address here, and we're going to get back to that in a minute. But I think it's important. I wanted to give you the opportunity, if you if you wish, to tell our listeners about um, you know your experience because. Many of us know about it from afar. Some of us know who know you more personally might know a little more details about it. Um, you know, a person in your position doesn't get to have a form necessarily to, you know, explain both what you went through as well as the impact that it had and, and what you learned from it as a lawyer. So I really appreciate that you took this opportunity. I know it wasn't easy for you to do that. But, um, you know, if there is a, a silver lining to this is that it, got you involved in this project and um, this is a really really important project that I think many Canadians could benefit from and you know we have Aisha here who is a first-year law student who has an, an interest in this project as well and she's hopefully going to lead the way for several other generations as well to get involved in something like this Aisha how'd you get involved in the cannabis amnesty project uh, so I'm here as a fellow, um, a Toki fellow for the summer. Um, and I guess when I was looking for summer employment um, opportunities, you know, we were told to apply to the, you know, the big, the big law firms downtown or this, you know, law, tech law firm doing that thing or this like labor and employment boutique doing this other thing. Um, and everything just seemed very corporate and, you know, I would have learned lots in any position, and I do hope to one day, you know, partake um, in those environments to, like, learn the skills that I need. Uh, but I was really drawn to Cannabis Amnesty because of its focus on addressing systemic injustice um, and taking a really relevant and current issue. You know, there's an estimated 500,000 Canadians with cannabis convictions and a cannabis record. Um, and that's that's a lot of people uh, in this country who are being punished for something that is no longer illegal to this day. Uh, and so, you know, this type of work affects, you know, friends, family, community. I'm sure we all know someone, um, whether we actually know or not, who um, is dealing with the collateral consequences of a cannabis conviction. And, you know, we believe that, you know, the justice system should be serving justice. And when the government decided to, you know, legalize cannabis, they forgot a lot of people um, and left a lot of people behind. Can you shed some light as to the types of activities that um, Cannabis Amnesty is involved in? Yeah, so Cannabis Amnesty has been doing lots of work. Uh, we currently actually this summer have launched a 
campaign called Legalize Us, which touches exactly on what we've been talking about today. Uh, so we released a short film um, that I encourage everyone to check out. You can find it on our YouTube or any of our social medias, um, just highlighting the uh, impacts of a cannabis conviction um, in employment um, of many other um, areas that is impacted by it. Um, but this campaign is really to bring uh, focus and um, public education around um, how systemic racism, um, because we know that these laws um, and the enforcement of cannabis laws um, have disproportionately impacted marginalized and racialized communities. Um, so how the enforcement of cannabis laws um, has caused qualified and willing members of society to be shut out of employment opportunities, travel opportunities, sometimes even custody of their kids. Uh, and, you know, this not does this doesn't just cause harm to these individuals, but causes harm to family and community and just perpetuates that cycle um, and that systemic injustice and systemic racism um, through poverty, disenfranchisement, um, and more. So yeah, one campaign. Everyone should definitely check us out on social media for that. Can you just tell us about how it's the program started or who's on the board? And give us some background. And uh, Yeah, so in 2018 um, is when Cannabis Amnesty was founded. Um, I have the privilege of working with many of the uh, lawyers who founded that. Um, Anna Maria, Stephanie, I think they've all been on this podcast uh, before, and a couple other folks uh, came together in 2018 when cannabis was being legalized um, and were very concerned with the fact that the government wasn't doing anything about all these previous um, cannabis convictions for crimes that are no longer uh, illegal. Um, and so it started as a petition uh, for folks um, to just sign a petition calling on the government to act on this um, serious issue. Um, and I guess, you know, that was pretty successful and it like snowballed into this organization. Um, and yeah, lots of different things have, lots of different great things have come out of that. Um, I guess maybe Laura can speak more to that. Sure. So one of um, so Cannabis Amnesty is the umbrella organization, and Cannabis Amnesty works on a lot of different um, things, including advocacy, um, petitioning members of parliament. Um, but the pardon clinics is but one of the projects that Cannabis Amnesty works on. Um, and so this was sort of the impetus behind the pardon clinics. So in 2020... Um, one year into the, or after legalization, one year into the program, um, as part of legalization, the government of Canada, um, for people with cannabis possession records, simple possession only, not possession for the purpose of trafficking, not trafficking, simple possession records, the government uh, said they would waive the record suspension or pardon application fee, which at the time was $657. Um, so that, you know, people wouldn't have to pay that. But they would still have to apply through a streamlined, simple possession um, application, which differed from a regular pardon application. Uh, nonetheless, that application is still <laughs> convoluted for a layperson to navigate through. Um, 
Of course, Cannabis Amnesty wanted total expungement. Um, but the government fell short of, of total expungement. The government chose to um, do it this way, where they would waive the fee, um, but people would apply under a streamlined version of the record suspension application process. Okay, so then in 2020, about one year into the program, only 257 people had been granted a pardon. Of the 458 applications that were submitted, 259 were accepted for consideration, with 257 record suspensions granted and two discontinued. 194 applications were returned due to ineligibility or because the file submitted was incomplete. So just to give you an idea, um, that's not a very high number of applicants knowing how many people out there could benefit from a record suspension. And so then the questions started happening. You know, we started looking into this going, why aren't people applying? Or why are they applying and failing um, in, in their application? Um, and so there's a few underlying issues that the pardon clinics wanted to address. Um, the lack of access to information about the program and help with the application process. Uh, it's a convoluted process that requires multiple steps, waiting in lines at courthouses, lengthy waiting periods, waiting for documents to get mailed to you, and confusing instructions. Um, the fee was the fee for a pardon application, um, for a regular pardon application. So this is if you have something beyond a simple cannabis possession record. Uh, the fee was $657.77. Up until uh, recently, uh, as of 2022, the fee is now $50. But that's a pretty steep price to pay to apply to um, get a pardon. So all of these things were um, prohibitively difficult um, and, and that's not to mention, by the way, all of the ancillary fees that come with applying for a pardon. So not only was there the application fee, there's the criminal record check fee at the RCMP. There's all of the local police record checks that can cost between 50 to 80, sorry, um, 40 to 120 dollars. There's the fingerprinting fee, which can cost about 75 to 80 dollars. Uh, postage like there's all these fees that come with it so the average cost of applying for a pardon uh, was close to a thousand bucks um, so the purpose of the pardon clinics is to address all of these issues and um, help people help achieve a higher success rate in in pardon applications being successful, yeah. And have people been responding to that? Um, the pardon clinics have a lot of support, have a lot of community support. We actually haven't launched yet. Um, I, Aisha can, can speak a little bit to that. So right now we are um, putting everything um, in motion. And um, Cannabis Amnesty has an office um, where... The pardon clinics um, will be launched. So I'll let Aisha speak to you a little bit about the launch plan. Yeah, so right now the pardon clinics we're looking to launch in 2023. 
Uh, and our next big fundraising campaign is the Sponsor a Pardon campaign, which we'll be launching late this summer. Um, and basically, we, you know, the fee for a full pardon, um, as Laura mentioned, would be about 250 So we're asking organizations, whether that's like in the cannabis industry, individuals, um, you know, anyone, uh, to sponsor, you know, one, if not many, um, pardon so that we can, you know, do this work of supporting these um, estimated 500,000 Canadians get justice. And um, besides sponsorship, is there any way else people can get involved? Yeah. Um, so we have a um, email list folks can sign up for to um, hear about what we're working on and as things come out. We also have a volunteer uh, list that we are accepting folks um, who do want to get involved with the organization. Um, one thing that's really cool about this organization is you, if you do want to volunteer, you kind of have the opportunity to you know plug into what you're interested in and like the things you you know are passionate about or care about, um, as long as they you know align with the organization's mission, of course. Uh, so yeah, I definitely encourage folks to get involved. I'm very much enjoying my summer here so far. Just, um, Laura, you touched upon a couple of the collateral consequences in terms of things that you've experienced uh, with respect to travel. And you also mentioned that there's um, an inability to get involved in like legalized cannabis industry. But are there any other more, I don't want to say something more day to day that the cannabis uh, record could affect you? or could affect the person as a collateral consequence? Oh, absolutely. Um, employment. Um, and Aisha pointed to this great video that's on the Cannabis Amnesty um, site. I highly recommend everybody uh, watch the video. Um, it's about somebody applying for a job who has a cannabis record. Uh, and... It's a very realistic video. Um, the trauma that that person, the anxiety that that person is experiencing in the video, that's a very real feeling that people with um, cannabis convictions have, whether they be traveling or applying for a job. Uh, there's always this fear that something you're going to be misjudged or something bad is going to happen or you're not going to be treated fairly. Um, Volunteering can be a problem. So, for example, you know, if you want to work somewhere like the Boys and Girls Club or somewhere that requires a more in-depth background check or vulnerable persons check, uh, those things can come up um, and perhaps bar you from volunteering in your community. Um, there can be bias that you encounter with respect to housing from landlords. Um, I think Aisha mentioned um, custody issues with children. So yeah, there's a lot of day-to-day -day collateral consequences. And like I said, some of those things can also affect persons who have simply been charged, even if they haven't been convicted. Is there any, um, let me put it this way, what's the best way for any of our listeners to reach out and get in contact or get involved with the organization? Yeah, um, you follow us on social media. We are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. 
Uh, and also you can shoot us an Im- email at info at cannabisamnesty.ca. That goes directly to our um, executive director, Anna Maria. Um, and she's, she's great. Has been on the podcast before. Um, and she's, yeah, <laughs> she's great. Before we move uh, on to my usual uh, legal questions, is there anything you, you want to say about cannabis amnesty that we haven't touched upon? Maybe I'll just talk um, a bit about the mission of cannabis amnesty as well as our just um, principles. Sure. Uh, so the first is advocating for justice reform. Um, so we believe in full cannabis amnesty, the full decriminalization of cannabis, um, and we advocate against illegal police actions around detention, search and seizures, and the use of force. Uh, the second principle we talked about a lot today is addressing collateral consequences of cannabis convictions. The third is challenging the legal industry. Um, to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion in the legal cannabis um, space because, shockingly, um, the cannabis space is not very diverse right now. Um, And finally, challenging the social stigma associated with cannabis convictions, Um, you know, really challenging that idea that people who have cannabis convictions on their records are bad people. Um, You know, sometimes it's situational, sometimes, you know, Things happen, you know. Sometimes the police want to want to do what they do, um, but at the end of the day, um, a, a cannabis conviction should not impact your life, especially when it's legal um, to use um, recreational marijuana um, the way that it still does. Well, it's great to see that um, you know we have two guests here from totally different ends of the legal spectrum somebody just entering into law school versus somebody who has been practicing lawyer for a significant amount of time both converging together for this uh, project and to move these issues forward because obviously the goal here would be to one day uh, make these cannabis convictions uh, a thing of the past and not have a day-to-day impact on those who experienced these convictions at some point uh, many years ago. I just want to ask some law-related questions, if you guys will uh, engage me. Um, Aisha, I know you just completed your first year, so this might be a difficult question for you to ask, but has there been any um, lawyer that you has inspired you or that you would have wished to have seen advocate um, that might have motivated you into this profession or somebody you you can look uh, at fondly and say, this is somebody who I intend to uh, emulate at some point in my career? Yeah, um, I'd have to say Rocky Jones. He was a African Nova Scotian lawyer, a political activist and community organizer. Um, he was very involved in the Nova Scotian community, in the black community, in Um, supporting marginalized folks in many roles. He worked in the areas of human rights, civil rights, prison rights, um, race, and poverty. Um, And I think what inspires me and what I admire about him um, was the way he was both connected to community on the ground in the day-to-day while also doing this important systemic 
um, work in the courtroom, um, in the boardrooms. Um, and one really cool thing I think he did, um, he successfully argued um, RVRDS before the Supreme Court of Canada, which was a groundbreaking case um, setting the precedent for race-related litigation and contextualized judging. Um, So basically having race be a relevant consideration um, in the judging process. Uh, So yeah, I think he's great. Um, He unfortunately passed away when I was pretty young, but I still, um, you know, see... um, relics of him in our community and people still to this day talk very fondly about Rocky Jones and the wonderful things he's been able to do for the people with the people by the people. That's a, that's a very, um, unique answer it was the first time we've heard of for Rocky Jones, uh, in the podcast. And I'm glad that, uh, you, you've turned your mind to this answer. Um, Laura, you've answered this question before, so you can tell us somebody that you wish you had seen or somebody that you have seen and encourage others to see. Um, I see you there in pensive thought going through your roster of probably counsel that uh, you might want to speak about. Okay. So um, last time I was on the podcast, I, um, I said Stephen Bernstein, who incidentally was also my former boss. <laughs> um, this time I think um, – If I'm thinking, you know, somebody I don't know, um, I would say uh, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. I would have um, loved to see her uh, in practice prior to becoming a Supreme Court judge. As you know, she was the first um, Hispanic female nominee um, she worked on cases involving police brutality. Um, she she did a lot of trench work uh, early on in uh, in her career uh, prior to becoming um, a judge. Uh, but if if we're going to talk contemporaries um, here in Toronto, uh, I would suggest for young lawyers. Um, if you ever get the opportunity, it's been a while since I've had a case with Hussein Ali, <laughs> but I'm going to say, check out Hussein Ali. Um, I really like Hussein's uh, conversational cross-examination style. Um, he has a smile on his face, uh, the smiling executioner, so to speak, <laughs> while, he's, um, while he's cross-examining. Um, I just, I really like his his style and the way he delivers um, a cross-examination. Um, and he's, uh, pardon my language, he's a no-bullshit kind of person, very matter-of-fact, um, the way he talks, very personable and very colloquial. So I really like uh, Hussein's uh, style in court. Um, and as far as uh, Female lawyers in Toronto, I would encourage young counsel, if they have the opportunity, to work with or watch Emily Lamb. Um, Emily does a lot of very interesting cases, both appellate uh, appellate work and trial work. Uh, she likes taking on very interesting, complex legal issues. She's currently the lead on a Garofoli uh, application. Garofoli. 
application (laughs) (laughs) Um, on a project uh, where I have a co-accused, but she's also done um, great work with the sentencing project, and you can take you can look that up. And uh, she's she works on the sentencing project with um, Faisal Mirza and Anthony Morgan, um, just recognizing um, the over incarceration of racialized minorities, um, and just the work she's done around the special PSR reports um, on the sentencing project. I think that's a great, much needed initiative. So I know that's three answers, but I covered a few bases there. Well, lucky for uh, many of our listeners, both Hussein and Emily are very busy lawyers and are in court all the time. So if you are in the courthouses and you cross paths with any of them, I'm sure you can ask them what they're up to and pop in to watch their cases because um, it will be a, a, a very good learning experience for to learn from both of them. Aisha Abawaji and Laura Lisho, thank you very much for attending uh, in the garage. Uh, continuing legal education is something that we can learn from both in person and through some formal mechanisms, and I think that's exactly what we're doing here. Before we leave, I would ask if there's anything uh, either of you would like to plug. I suspect I know the answer. <laughs> but um, can you just tell us where we could find Amnesty? Cannabis Amnesty. Yes, yeah, so you can find Cannabis Amnesty on all social media, media platforms, uh, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. Um, you can also check out our webpage, Uh, at cannabisamnesty.ca and that is also our uh, handle on all our social medias thanks for coming guys thanks for having us and if anybody wants to reach out to me at um, pardons at cannabisamnesty.ca if you're a lawyer and you're interested in volunteering please feel free to do so Uh, pardons at cannabis uh, cannabisamnesty.ca and we can see how uh, we can get you involved and find uh, a great fit so that you can use your, your skill set to um, help somebody. Since we recorded this episode, there's been an update in the Cannabis Amnesty program. On November 17th, 2022, Bill C-5 received royal assent. The bill requires that all records of a conviction for simple possession of cannabis must be kept separate and apart from other records of convictions by November 17th, 2024, automatically, and at no cost to the individual. As a result of this bill, Cannabis Amnesty will no longer need to offer the services of a pardon clinic. When reached for comment, Cannabis Amnesty Executive Director Anna Maria Enenajor stated, The automatic sequestration provision in Bill C-5 is a direct response to the lobbying efforts of Cannabis Amnesty and our partners, who have been calling on this government to address the barriers created by the persistence of criminal records for the simple drug possession offenses. It represents the culmination of the work of our organization. It does not, however, address all of the collateral consequences of criminal records for cannabis possession and other convictions. 
To that end, we encourage our partners and allies to continue to advocate for broader reforms to Canada's criminal record regime. Thank you for listening to the Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out our back catalog and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Stow, Remy Sansawal, and Matthew Takamatsu. The Law Garage is a J. Mike podcast production.